right, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, great to see you all here. Um, as Dustin said, my name's Aaron. I'm one of our community group leaders, um, longtime member here. Um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verses 21 uh, through 21 tonight. Uh, I'm going to be doing all of my scripture reading from the NET translation. But before we dig into that key text, um, I want to begin our time together sharing um, actually another, one, another text that immediately precedes our key text, which is John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And this is what they say. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many people believed in his name because they saw the miraculous signs that he was doing. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He did not need anyone to testify about man, for he knew what was in man. So last week, uh, as as Dustin preached, we looked at Jesus' cleansing of the temple, a moment where Jesus acted as the fiery prophet and ousted those who were profiting at the expense of those seeking to worship the Lord, especially the poor. And one second here. And this occurred near the beginning of the Passover, the festival remembering God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And where all, um, where after nine signs or nine plagues, God had given through Moses and Aaron, God gave one final sign, one final plague that would show Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and in fact all the Israelites with them God's power and sovereignty as he commanded that the Israelites be freed to worship him. And that sign, that final plague was the death of every firstborn male except for those found in homes covered, uh, where the doorposts were covered with the blood of a spotless lamb, the blood of a substitute. And while what Jesus was doing in cleansing the temple was not a miraculous sign the way that his turning water into wine was and his other miracles that we'll explore in the coming weeks were, it was still a sign of his identity. And these three verses in many ways serve as a narrative transition between those signs that we saw in chapter two, the turning, the, the power which showed his power and provision at the wedding in Canaan, his authority at the temple. And John says that because of what they saw, people were believing in Jesus' name. Now, to believe in someone's name meant to trust, to, not, to value not only what they could do, but who they were, their character, their identity, their entire being. But John wrote that Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people, that he knew that their faith wasn't actually genuine. Their faith wasn't actually faith because it was based in the wrong thing. And this is how these three verses set up an important theme that runs through Jesus' interactions with people throughout the rest of John's gospel. Do people believe in Jesus because of what Jesus can do or because of who Jesus is? And not only that, these verses reveal something very important about Jesus that affect how he interacts with people throughout his entire earthly ministry. And even now, today, which is this, that Jesus knows our hearts better than we do. 
He knows what motivates us. He knows what we really believe in a way that we don't. He knows the why behind our professions of faith, or in fact, the why behind our apparent lack of a profession of faith. And he knows all of this because Jesus is God. And because he is God, he has divine attributes, one of which is called omniscience, which literally just means all-knowing. So, Jesus knows everything. That's, that's one of our big key takeaways for tonight. But there, that means that there's nothing that cannot, that can catch him unaware. There's nothing that can sneak past him. There is nothing unknown to Jesus in his fully godness. And we need that understanding of Jesus. We need it all the time, every moment of every day, but especially as we examine one of the most famous, frequently read, often preached, and frankly misunderstood passages of the Bible that contains one of the best known, most quoted, and least understood verses in the entire Bible. So as we look now at John chapter 3 verses 1 through 21 together, we want to keep that in mind. That what Jesus knows about us shapes how he responds to us and how we respond to him in kind. And as we explore this this truth through Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, we're going to see it play out in the following ways. First, that Jesus knows the questions behind our questions. The second, that Jesus tells us what we need to know, even if we don't understand it. Third, that Jesus reveals the heart of our questions and our questioning. Fourth, that Jesus shows us what God's love really and truly looks like. And finally, that Jesus doesn't hide the reality of rejecting him. So we'll start in John chapter 3, verse 1. But first, let's pray very quickly. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word and that we get to come together to hear from you as we, as we seek to understand it together. Help me to, to share faithfully and honestly and to be helpful to everyone who's here tonight. Help us to be aware of what you want each of us to understand and how you're speaking to us as you know what we need to know through it. In, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, verse 1. Now a certain man a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform this, the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth that you, uh, uh, that unless a person is born, um, is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus shows up um, apparently with, with flattery, trying to determine who Jesus actually is, whether it's for his own sake or on behalf of the Pharisees as a whole or realistically probably a little bit of both. We know you come from God, he said to Jesus, because no one could perform these signs unless God were with him. That sounds pretty familiar. Think back to last week 
Remember the question that the Jewish leaders asked in John chapter 2, verse 18. What sign can you show us since you are doing these things? We're often quick to cast judgment on the Pharisees, but we need to understand that these guys, they were no dummies. They knew the scriptures well enough to know what a prophet looked like. They also knew the signs of the Messiah, God's chosen one, his promised rescuer. And the preceding verses certainly suggest that during the Passover, Jesus was performing some kinds of signs and likely miraculous ones at that. And people were professing faith in him because of those signs. And Nicodemus undoubtedly saw some of those signs with his own eyes. And so they clearly made him curious. And his question was, who is this Jesus? What's this guy all about? And so he went to Jesus at night to ask. Now, whether he was doing this because of fear of reprisal from his fellow Pharisees, because he, um, because he didn't want to be publicly associated with Jesus, or maybe he just simply wanted to talk to him privately, we don't really know. We don't know what motivates people to ask what they do or to do what they, they do, but Jesus does. Remember, Jesus knows Nicodemus' heart better than Nicodemus does. And so Jesus cuts right to the chase. He doesn't waste words with pleasantries or affirmations. He doesn't even rebuke Nicodemus responding to his statement saying, well, if you know all these things about me, why don't you believe in me too? No, instead we see in verse 3 that Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth, or truly, truly, I say to you, or pay attention, this is really important. Unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that right there is, just as Jesus said, really, really important. It's also one of the most confusing verses in the entire Bible. And we're going to get to that confusing part in just a minute. But for this moment, right now, let's just focus on one aspect of this. Um, on these words, unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus knew the real reason behind Nicodemus's coming to him. He knew that the question behind Nicodemus's question was, was about that. Even if Nicodemus himself didn't know it, Nicodemus was looking for the answer to this question. How do I enter the kingdom of God? Nicodemus, one of the leaders of the Pharisees, a teacher of teachers, a devout student of the scriptures, an earnest keeper of the law. He desired to enter the kingdom of God, to live under God's perfect rule over all creation. And he was trying his hardest to obey God's commands because that was the only way that he could see that one could achieve this. But he also knew somewhere deep down that he was coming up short, that for all the appearance of goodness and righteousness and godliness, that something was missing, that he lacked something. But he just couldn't see what it was. But Jesus could, and Jesus did. 
Jesus knew the question behind Nicodemus's question. And he knows the questions behind our questions too. The questions that maybe don't have anything to do with our understanding of how we enter the kingdom of heaven or how we see the kingdom of God. But the things of life, like why am I single? Or why, why don't I have children? Why don't my children seem to love the Lord? Why am I str still struggling with this sin after so many years? Why am I disabled? These are, these are questions that, that I wrestle with. These are the kinds of questions that we all wrestle with. Even if we don't know that we're wrestling with them, God knows. Jesus knows. Do you believe that? And here's the good news. Jesus might not answer those questions the way that we are asking on the surface. But because he knows the questions behind our questions, you better believe he is going to answer those ones. And so whenever we come to the scriptures, whenever we pray, when we are in conversation with other Christians, we should expect that God is going to speak to those questions, the ones that we might not even know that need to be answered because he wants us to know what we really need because that's who he is and that's how good he is. Now, Let's talk about that confusing part of this verse because that confusing part actually leads us right into our second point, which is uh, probably our most highly theological and again, and one of the most highly confusing aspects of this passage. So listen again to Jesus' response to Nicodemus. Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. And do not be amazed that I, told, that I told you that you must be born from above. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going, and so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And so here Jesus tells us that we need what we need to know, even if we don't understand it. And what is it that Jesus is talking about here? He says that unless a person is born from above, or more familiarly, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been in church for any significant period of time, you've heard this language. If you read your Bible regularly, you've undoubtedly read this passage at least a few dozen times. But don't let your familiarity with it cause you to gloss over it to assume that you know what's going on here. What does Jesus mean when he says you must be born from above or born again? Nicodemus, one of the teachers of Israel, a man learned and familiar with the scriptures, he doesn't understand this because it sounds absurd. 
And maybe it sounds that way to you too. Because what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here is uh, that it's not enough to profess faith, to believe that Jesus is sent from God because of the signs that he performs, as so many others did. All of those signs, uh, all of those Jesus did not entrust himself to because he knew what was in their hearts. And so we can say all we want, I believe in Jesus or I'm a Christian and still be far from the kingdom of God. And do you know how I know that? Because of where we live. We live in the Christ-haunted South. A place where everyone thinks they're a Christian because they know some of the language or because they've gone to the same church since the day after they were born or because of how they vote. But Jesus says emphatically that none of these things matter. None of them matter. You can be a member of the same church your whole life. That does not mean that you are entering the kingdom of heaven. It is possible to do all kinds of Christian things and still be far from the kingdom of God. It's possible to be a good person and still be completely lost. And so instead, Jesus says, there is only one way to see, only one way to enter. You must be born again. You must be born from above. This is a truth that we know as regeneration, and it's something that we find described in various ways throughout the entire Bible, including as regeneration and renewal in Titus, being made alive with in Christ in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2, and of course, here being born again or born from above, which we see here, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 John chapter 2, and all throughout that epistle. What this is, though, is regeneration is a supernatural work of God, which means that it's something that's only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus is getting at um, in verses 5 through 8 when he is talking about um, whatever is, uh, that unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. What he's doing here is he's referencing back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 44, verses 3 and 5, and Ezekiel 37, 9 and 10. But let's unpack this truth a little bit more because it's so important. And truly, nothing else that Jesus says in this passage makes a lick of sense without understanding this, without having some grasp of it. And it starts by thinking about what the Bible says about humanity. Because it's pretty clear as you read scripture that humans are actually pretty special. We're called from the beginning image bearers of God, created in, as his representatives in the world to act as stewards and cultivators. This is a high calling. It's a good calling. It's a beautiful calling. And then humans went and ruined everything. When the first people denied his goodness and authority, sinning against God, choosing to go their own way instead of faithfully following him, rejecting his rule and attempting to rule for themselves. And so God, just as he, as he gives us 
this high calling of humanity is, he also doesn't shy away from describing the ugliness of our condition from that point forward. Because we are called in scripture, corrupt, haters of God, lovers of darkness, inventors of evil, children of wrath, and dead in our trespasses and sin, among other more choice descriptions. And all of this amounts to just one very important and profound truth that we're all in a heck of a lot of trouble, guys. And there is nothing that we can do about any of it on our own. We cannot change ourselves to become better, more moral, more virtuous people. And it's not because those things are bad in and of themselves, because they're actually very good things. We want to be moral people. We want to be good people. It's just that they're not enough. God isn't content to make us better people. He makes us new people. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes dead people live. He regenerates us. He changes our hearts, convicting us of our sin and helping us to see our need for a savior. He leads us to respond in repentance and faith to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Spirit works to quote the Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones down in the very depths of the personality and put there a new principle of life, something absolutely new so that there is the new man. That is the only way that any of us enter the kingdom of God. To regain what was lost when sin entered the world and corrupted all of us. If we want that, the only thing we is this. We must be born again. And then Nicodemus continues. He says, how can these things be? And Jesus answers, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? I tell you the solemn truth. We speak about what we know and testify what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. If I've told, told you people about earthly things and you don't believe, how will, how will you believe if I, don't, if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who descended from heaven. Or, uh, sorry, no one has ascended into heaven except the, except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus is teaching here, and we'll get to the next couple of verses in a second, but Jesus' teaching here on the new birth is one of the hard teachings of the Bible. It's one of the most challenging of the Christian faith. And so if you've had been scratching your head here while we've been talking, you're not alone. For centuries, it has been a source of confusion. And even those who do get, who do get it, they only really kind of do because there's only so much of it that we can grasp. This would be like explaining quantum mechanics to a four-year-old. You just don't do it. Um, so, uh, so when we read Nicodemus's response to Jesus, let's do so with sympathy. He didn't understand what Jesus was saying, not completely at least. He knew the Old Testament references Jesus was making. He knew that the prophets spoke about such things. But how could this new birth happen? How was it possible? And as he prepared to answer, Jesus turned the conversation once again, and he said, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand this, these things? Jesus did hear what he always does, and he went right for Nicodemus's heart. 
and, doing, and in doing so, challenged the heart of his questioning. And that's the same thing that he does for us, which actually isn't going far enough in my language. It's not that he just challenges it. It's that he reveals the heart of our questioning. And essentially what he says is, is that this is a matter of faith. And that brings us back to the verses that started our time, because Jesus wasn't talking about a blind faith or naive, wishful thinking. He was saying that all of this hinges on who we believe he is, who we understand him to be. Because if Jesus is just some teacher, even a powerful one sent by God and empowered by him, then, it doesn't really ma- then he doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But if he is, as he himself said in verse 13, the one, who, the one with a, the authority of God himself, one who has that authority, not simply because he was sent by God, but because he is God, then it changes everything. Who Jesus is, is the central question that we have in this world. It's the question of John's gospel and every gospel. It is the question all history confronts us with, whether we realize it or not. The question that Jesus himself asked his own disciples, who do you say that I am? And then Jesus, in his kindness, answered Nicodemus's question. You really want to know how it's possible to be born again? He says like this, and he gives this analogy, one drawn from Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9, where the Israelites in their disobedience uh, and rebellion against God were plagued by poisonous snakes. But God, in his kindness to them, commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole. And when anyone who had been bitten looked at it, they would be healed. And so Jesus says, In verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And this again shows us the kindness of Jesus to us, even in our uncertainty, our doubts, and our unbelief, that even as he reveals the heart of our questioning, he points us to the truth, that As Kent Hughes wrote in his commentary on this passage, that Christ is telling us that the new birth comes through the simple gaze of faith, which doesn't mean a perfect faith. And that's the point. For all of our questions, for all of our doubts, and all of our uncertainty, we are not saved by a perfect faith, but by faith in a perfect Savior. A savior who came into the world to be raised up so that everyone who looks on him in faith for the forgiveness of their sins will have eternal life. And this is important. Everyone. When Jesus says everyone, he does mean everyone. Everyone who believes will have eternal life. The eternal life that Jesus promises. Everyone who believes genuinely is born again by the Holy Spirit. Everyone who genuinely believes will see the kingdom of God. And if that wasn't enough, we get even greater detail as Jesus doubles down on this truth and shows us what God's love really and truly looks like. And we see this in John 3, 16. For this is the way God loved the world. 
He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Now, there's a very small amount of disagreement regarding these next few verses, but it has nothing to do with what we've just heard. It has everything to do with who translators think is actually saying it. Some translations, like in the ESV and the CSB, present John 3.16 and the verses that follow as continuing Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus. So they treat them as the words of Jesus. Others, like the NET that I'm reading from and the NIV, treat these verses as a theological reflection by John. Uh, for what it's worth, I actually think the CSB and the, and the ESV are right on this. But either way, the effect is the same. In this passage, we have one of Scripture's most beautiful pictures of the gospel. And within that, within this passage as a whole, but within this passage, we have John 3.16, which may be the most quoted verse in the entire Bible, and for good reason, because it's really, really good news. For this is the way that God loved the world, or more familiarly, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Now, the difference in the rendering here is important because it helps us to see the facets of what we're actually reading here. Because as 21st century English speakers, we're most likely to read something like, for God so loved the world as a statement of affection. And this is certainly right. I mean, think about the kind of love that God has for people like you and me to literally send his son, his one and only, only begotten, eternally existent son to be the substitute that we so desperately need, both in faithfully living in the way that we cannot and in taking the condemnation that is ours by nature. That is an incredible kind of love. It's the kind of love that goes beyond anything a good man or woman might offer Jesus laid down his life for his friends, but not while they were his friends. While we were yet his enemies, while we were helpless and hopeless, Christ died for us. It's hard to imagine a greater degree of affection than that. But that alternate rendering is also reveals something that is equally important. Not just that lo God loves us to the degree with which he loves us, but how specifically he does it. He doesn't just love the world generically. He shows his love. He displays it in a very particular, specific way. And how is that? By sending his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Of all the ways that God can and does show his love for the world, it is in this way that it is most clearly displayed for us all. And verse 17 serves as this powerful gospel punctuation point that Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son came into the world for this express purpose, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And here's the good news. Whatever Jesus sets out to do, he accomplishes. Do you believe that? You should. He didn't come into this world with good intentions and to leave us with a hope of maybe some kind of salvation down the road. 
He came into this world to actually save everyone who believes in him. And what's more, he actually did it as he declared from the cross, it is finished. That means it's done. You don't need more saving. Because, because of what he did, we can be saved. All who trust in him, all who put their faith in him as the son of God, as the long-awaited Messiah, as the rescuer of God's people, will be saved. And not one of them, those who are born again, those who look to him in faith, will be snatched out of his hand. Not a single one will be lost. Every single one who puts their faith in Jesus will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. But what about those who don't? Well, that's what we see in the next, in, in the next verses. Verse 18 says this. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Now, this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. So whenever we talk about the good news, we have to acknowledge that there's also bad. And the bad news in the gospel has to do with the consequences of rejecting Jesus and the reality that there are people who will reject him. And Jesus doesn't hide that here. He gives us a sobering truth, a wake-up call to humanity's real situation. And with words that echo those of John chapter 1, we see that judgment is not disconnected from the gospel. It's a part of it. But we are wrong if we approach Jesus as though he specifically came to smite those who reject him. Because he didn't. He didn't because he didn't need to. He didn't need to condemn anyone because those who do not believe are already condemned. They have been from the beginning. By virtue of their own rebellion, their own self-condemning unbelief and rejection of God, their hatred of the light, and their love of darkness. And so this is why the Bible says elsewhere that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus because condemnation comes apart from him. It is the death of Christ that destroys this condemnation as he was condemned for us and for all who believe. It's the love of Christ, the specific and eternal life-giving love that welcomes all who turn to him in faith that frees us from this condemnation. Not faith only in what he can do. Faith in who he is. And so, we've covered a significant amount of ground tonight in this passage. And truth be told, we could easily spend the rest of eternity mining just these verses and still not come up short. But as we recognize what Jesus, that, Jesus, that what Jesus knows about us shapes how he responds to us and how we respond to him, as we recognize that 
Jesus knows the truth or knows the questions behind our questions. That Jesus tells us what we need to know, even if we don't understand it. That Jesus reveals the heart of our questions and our questioning. That Jesus shows us what God's love is really and truly like. That, and that Jesus doesn't hide the reality of rejecting him. I want us to stop and I want us to see this good news that is the gospel and see that it really is the good news that we need today. And by we in that, I mean we. All of us need this good news. All of us right now need to be reminded of that reality, that whatever sin you face or temptations you experience, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn you. Jesus came into the world to save you, to help you to see and experience and be reconciled with your creator, to enjoy life with him forever and ever through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, as we close and we take communion where we remember the death of Jesus, as we long and wait for the return of Jesus, I want you to take a moment and consider what's been happening in your heart and consider and in mind as you listen, as you've been listening tonight, what's resonating with you? Where are you feeling hesitant or maybe even resistant? Where are you feeling curious? Don't ignore those things. Don't brush them off. Sit with them. Talk through them with someone who's sitting close to you in the room, if you're, if you're willing. Come find me if you want, or, or Dustin, or any of the other leaders who are here tonight. Talk to anybody. We'd love to help you in any way that we can. And now for those of us who are Christians, this passage really is good news for us too. Because we are so quick to forget the good news of the gospel to believe the gospel with our minds and our mouths, but to forget it in our hearts. To live in fear of rejection of Christ, of his condemnation, and especially when we sin. And for us, the good news is this. There really is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn you. He came to save you, to demonstrate the love of God in the most incredible way possible by taking the condemnation that was yours as his own. So stop trying to take it back. Leave it with him. Thank him for it. Rejoice with him that you are his and that because you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you... That, that, that you sent your son into this world to rescue people through his life, death, and resurrection. Thank you that everyone who believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. God, I pray that everyone here will, who does believe right now, that they will rejoice in that truth. And I pray that those who don't, that they will run to Jesus now and be able to rejoice in that truth with us as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray.